Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, April 28th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The House defeats a measure to withdraw from Somalia. So the House on Thursday voted down a war powers resolution that was introduced by Representative Matt Gates that would have directed President Biden to remove all U.S. troops from Somalia within one year, except those that are guarding the U.S. embassy. So this vote kind of snuck up on me. I learned Thursday morning that they were going to hold the debate and the vote uh, later in the day. And the resolution failed in a vote of 102 to 321. It received support from 52 Republicans and 50 Democrats. So this was similar to the resolution that Gates introduced to pull out of Syria. Uh, The vote was about the same, except that one got 103 in favor. But similar uh, split between Republicans and Democrats. While, you know, it it failed, uh, you know, the vast majority, maybe not vast majority, but the majority voted against it. There is kind of this significant coalition, I think, building in Congress. And, you know, this resolution was led by Gates and it was co-sponsored by Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, you know, those types of Republicans. It also received support from group progressive Democrats like, you know, the squad. And during the debate on the floor this time, Ilhan Omar argued in favor of the resolution. So it was kind of cool to see that. And members of the Progressive Caucus leadership said a congressional staffer told The Intercept ahead of the vote that the Progressive Caucus leadership is going to vote for it. The Progressive Caucus has about 100 members in the House, so they didn't get all of their uh, people to vote for it. 50 Democrats voted for it. But leadership did. uh, What's her name? Uh, Jayapal, who leads the caucus. So I still think, you know, that that um, is significant to see. And it's very interesting to see. And so this vote comes. So there's actually kind of some good news out of Somalia. It's really a lack of news. Um, So U.S. operations in Somalia have escalated since President Biden ordered the deployment of up to 500 troops to the country last year. Actually, this isn't good news because Gates was saying on the floor that there's 900 U.S. troops there. So that means they sent even more troops. I got to look into that some more, Um, maybe try to get some kind of confirmation of that that there's 900 troops, because that's a pretty significant difference, 500 to 900. And then last year, also the U.S.-backed government in Somalia that's based in Mogadishu, they launched an offensive against al-Shabaab. So there's been an escalation in fighting on the ground, but there's been a recent lull in U.S. airstrikes. As you guys know, I cover, I try to cover Somalia airstrikes whenever um, they're reported, but the last one that was reported by U.S. Africa Command took place in February. So You know, it was a few times a month that the U.S. was bombing Somalia, but it hasn't happened since February. So I think that's good, although CIA drone strikes could be happening. You know, they don't have to tell anybody about that. Um, But Gates, uh, just a quote in here from him about this vote. He said, quote, the United States has had a military presence in Somalia since 1992, but it's been a costly and mostly fruitless endeavor. Somalia is entrenched in violence and political instability that has persisted for decades and there seems to be no end in sight. America has a responsibility to protect its citizens and defend its interests, but Somalia is not a vital national security concern. 
uh, end quote. So the debate was good. I thought Gates did good. Um, it was interesting to see. And I think what he's doing is good. I mean, I know that the, you know, the vote doesn't look great, but I think he's making these conversations. He's forcing conversations about these things. I mean, Congress has never debated this, what's been going on in Somalia. Um, you know, and he got them to debate Syria and he hinted that the next, uh, his next war powers resolution might involve us operations in Niger, which I don't even really know what's going on there. Um, I know that there's a U.S. Special Operations Forces presence there, but I don't know much about it. So that would that'll be really good, I think, to get more information about that. So, and again, I just mentioned at the end here then that in March they voted on the Syria War Powers Resolution, and it fell along uh, similar lines. That one actually got slightly more support from Democrats. And 56 Democrats voted for that, and 47 Republicans. And then with Somalia, it was 52 Republicans. So two more Republicans than Democrats and 50 Democrats. Um, so, uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, we just see more of this, this debate, getting this in the news, even the fact that there's 900 or it sounds like there's 900 U.S. troops in Somalia. Um, that's something we wouldn't know if this didn't happen. Again, I'm going to try to find confirmation of that because I know there's 900 U.S. troops in Syria. So maybe you got them mixed up. But then other people that were debating were also saying 900. So it sounds like, you know, Biden almost doubled the troop presence there without telling anybody. All right. The next one here, the Kremlin says that it welcomes steps to resolve the war in Ukraine. So the Kremlin said on Thursday that it would welcome any steps toward a settlement in the war in Ukraine following the call between Ukrainian President Zelensky and Chinese President Xi. So this is Dmitry Peskov. He said, quote, we are ready to welcome anything that could help bring an end to the conflict in Ukraine closer and actually also help Russia achieve all of its goals. We are ready to welcome that, end quote. So um, Russia's goals, you know, now they are saying that it includes the annexation, you know, recognizing the territory that they annexed in Zaporozhye, Kherson, and the Donbass as Russian territory. So you know, the two sides are very far apart on what their what their demands are, while Ukraine says Russia has to leave all the territory. But at least, you know, there's talk of peace talks going on right now, thanks to this push by China. Uh, Peskov said that he wouldn't comment on the phone call, really. He said, quote, as for the fact of their communication, it is a sovereign matter for each of the two countries that pertains exclusively to their bilateral dialogue, end quote. So during the call, she stressed to Zelensky that China will work to push for peace talks, and Beijing announced that it's going to send a very seasoned diplomat to Ukraine to speak with all parties in the region to resolve the crisis. So the envoy that China is sending is Li Hu, who is Beijing's special representative for Eurasian affairs, and he served as the Chinese ambassador to Russia from 2009 to 2019. So he was uh, recently, pretty recently, the ambassador to Russia. So Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said on Thursday, quote, the Chinese appointed special envoy will be the candidate best able to handle the progress of the peace talks, end quote. So then also on Thursday, Chinese Foreign Minister King Gang said that Beijing wants to work with Central Asian nations to bring Russia and Ukraine to the table, so he met with the foreign ministers of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. And he said that they're on the same page as China on the crisis in Ukraine. 
So a big diplomatic push going on here. You know, hopefully this bears some fruit. So while Russia and Ukraine are expressing an openness to China's efforts, I just mentioned in the article again that both sides are still very far apart. I mean, there's no sign of compromise from either side, but at least they're kind of expressing an openness to this Chinese push. I'm sure the U.S. isn't happy about it. You know, yesterday the White House said that they were, you know, oh, it's good that she and Zelensky talked. They didn't want to dismiss everything, but I'm sure um, that's just PR and that they're really not, uh, you know, they, I can't imagine the U.S. accepting any kind of Chinese broker deal here. Um, all right, the next one here, U.S. General says that Russia's ground forces are bigger than before the invasion. So this is General Christopher Cavoli. He's the commander of U.S. European Command. He told Congress on Wednesday that Russia's ground forces are bigger today than they were before Moscow launched its invasion of Ukraine last year. So he told the House Armed Services Committee, quote, the Russian ground force has been degenerated somewhat by this conflict, although it is bigger today than it was at the beginning of the conflict, end quote. So if you remember last fall, Putin ordered the mobilization of 300,000 fresh troops. And since then, they've kind of been building up their positions, and he hasn't used this big force for a major offensive. The, the heaviest fighting in Ukraine has been taking place, you know, around Bakhmut, of course. And there are Russian regular forces there, but it seems like the Wagner group, the mercenary group, is doing a lot of the fighting. Um, so Cavoli also said that Russia's Air Force and Navy have not taken many losses. He said, quote, the Air Force has lost very little. They've lost 80 planes. They have another 1,000 fighters and fighter bombers. The Navy has lost one ship, end quote. So Cavoli's comments are the latest sign that the U.S. does not have much confidence in Ukraine's chances to turn the tide in this war. And those recently leaked Pentagon documents show that the U.S. doesn't think Ukraine can regain much territory in its counteroffensive. And, uh, you know, the fact is, despite kind of the narrative that was spread through the media and Western media that, you know, Ukraine could win and Russia was losing, it's not really the case. Um, and that seems to be just coming out uh, more and more lately. All right, uh, the next one here, the U.S. sanctions target Russia's FSB and Iran's IRGC. So the U.S. on Thursday imposed sanctions on the Russian intelligence agency FSB and the intelligence wing of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps over allegations that they're involved in the detainment of Americans. So the sanctions also targeted four Iranian IRGC intelligence officials. But this move, I mean, it's symbolic because both the FSB and the IRGC are already under sanctions. The Trump administration designated the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization in 2019, which was a pretty big deal because they never did that to a country's military before. And that designation is huge. It's a very sweeping designation. It blacklists anyone who's ever been a member of the IRGC, current members, former members. And this was one thing when the U.S. and Iran were engaged in nuclear deal negotiations. They really wanted to get this lifted. And, you know, there are stories about Iranian Americans can't visit their families because they were, you know, a clerk for the IRGC a few decades ago. Um, so that shows how serious those sanctions are. But these new sanctions, because of all that, uh, they don't really mean anything. But what they are, are at least as far as Russia is concerned, is that this is a retaliation for Russia's detainment of Evan Gershkovich, who is the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter that was arrested in Russia over allegations of spying. So President Biden released a statement on these sanctions, and apparently this is a new 
type of sanction. He said, quote, today the Department of State and the Department of the Treasury have announced the U.S. government's first ever sanctions against actors for engaging in the wrongful detention of Americans. Today and every day, our message to Russia, Iran, and the world is holding hostages or wrongfully detaining Americans is unacceptable. Release them immediately, end quote. So this is just an example of them just doing something for the sake of doing something. I mean, again, this is just isn't really going to have an impact. And Biden administration officials acknowledged, uh, according to the New York Times, that the sanctions were designed primarily as a way to send a message of disapproval and that they wouldn't actually have much impact. Um, all right. I just want to take this moment again to mention that it is our fundraiser at antiwar.com. And we have our note at the top of the page from John Mearsheimer, who's been a very important voice during this uh, crisis in Ukraine, you know, for years after the 2014 coup, he was warning, you know, that this was going to lead to war, the U.S. policy. There was already war at that point in the Donbass, but, uh, you know, nobody listened to him, uh, you know, that was in power and we are where we are today. And he says that we are an important voice and people should support us. So you should listen to him and go to antiwar.com slash donate and see the different ways that you can, uh, uh, give a donation, uh, whether it's through a credit card, PayPal, cryptocurrency, we accept all those things. And we have um, some, you know, little blurbs from other people who support us here, including Ron Paul and Daniel Ellsberg. So, you know, a lot of people uh, are willing to endorse us. And I think it shows that we are, uh, you know, an important website, an important project. And if you want to be a part of it, you could go to antiwar.com slash donate. All right, the next one here, where was I? The House Committee prepares proposals to arm Taiwan. So the new House Committee on China is preparing proposals on ways to rapidly arm Taiwan and boost up American stockpiles of long-range missiles. So this, this comes after this new committee on China, who's led by our new friend, uh, Mike Gallagher, who's a Republican representative from Wisconsin. They participated in these war games that simulated a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and which was a very unusual move for Congress to do, members of Congress to participate in something like that. And I think it really shows how where their attitude is. They are preparing for war with China. Uh, just about every uh, part of the U.S. government is at this point. So Gallagher told Defense News that his committee was looking to insert provisions into the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. And, you know, this is a new committee. It comes with a Republican-controlled House, and it seems like they're really uh, going to try to ramp things up. So he said, quote, we're hoping to get consensus on a series of proposals that the committee can endorse that would be tailor-made for insertion into this year's NDAA, end quote. So the 2023 NDAA includes $3 billion in unprecedented military aid for Taiwan. That was the one that President Biden signed into law in December. It included $2 billion in foreign military financing, which is a State Department program. They give the money to foreign governments so they could buy U.S. weapons. And it also included $1 billion in the presidential drawdown, which is how the U.S. has been arming uh, Ukraine. And uh, it's one way they've been arming them. That's how they send weapons directly from U.S. military stockpiles. They want to start doing that for Taiwan, but uh, and the China Hawks are really not happy about this. So that made it through the NDAA, but the appropriations bill for 2023, those funds were not included. 
Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has said that he wants to use the $1 billion in drawdown authority. He wants to start sending weapons from Pentagon stockpiles over to Taiwan, but he's waiting for the funds to be appropriated. The China committee is expected to work to get these funds appropriated, whether it's for next year or, or just try to get this year, you know, some emergency funds. They really want to get this going. And Gallagher said that he wants to speed up arms sales to Taiwan. So he was talking about this $19 billion backlog of unfulfilled weapons deals for Taiwan that goes back to 2019. But, you know, that's what they call it, a backlog. And I'm sure there's some delays, especially with the Ukraine war, because they do are looking to buy some things that we've been sending to Ukraine. But, you know, weapons sales take years and years to fulfill and they have to make things and, and the contracting period. So this idea that there's this big backlog and that, like, I just don't think it's really right. But, you know, it serves their purpose to try to ramp everything up. So Gallagher said that Taiwan should be given priority for certain weapons, including harpoon anti-ship missiles. And Gallagher also wants the U.S. to invest more in its own long-range missiles as the U.S. quickly ran out of them during the war game. He said, quote, we need about 1,000 to 12,000 long-range anti-ship missiles, if you believe the unclassified war game. Our inventory is less than 250, and we're not just not producing them at a rapid rate. I believe we can get to above over 200 a year, end quote. So that's that. And uh, the war game I just mentioned again was funded, uh, not funded. It was conducted by the Center for a New American Security think tank. I saw, you know, Caitlin Johnstone has pointed out quite a bit. You know, the, the think tank is funded by the arms makers. You know, one of their top donors was Northrop Grumman for last year and you know it's just a coincidence that their war game determined oh you got to sell a lot of more weapons to taiwan we got to ramp up production because it's going to benefit all them and it, the think tank's also funded by taiwan and the pentagon so you know all right so the next one here china denounces the u.s plans to dock a nuclear armed submarine in south korea so China on Thursday announced U.S. plans to dock these nuclear-armed submarines in South Korea, saying that the plan runs counter to the goal of a denuclearized Korean peninsula. So this is Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning. She said, quote, The United States has put regional security at risk and intentionally used the issue of the peninsula as an excuse to create tension. What the U.S. does is full of Cold War thinking, provoking block confrontation, undermining the nuclear non-proliferation system, damaging the strategic interests of other countries, exacerbating tensions on the Korean Peninsula, undermining regional peace and stability, and running counter to the goal of the denuclearization of the peninsula, end quote. So that was a lot that she said there, but I think that, you know, that is a good point that the U.S. says it wants the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, and here they're sending nukes to the peninsula. So the submarine deployments are part of a plan to increase nuclear weapons cooperation between the U.S. and South Korea that Biden and Yoon announced at the White House. And so while these nuclear armed submarine patrols, so U.S. nuclear armed submarines can be pretty much anywhere in the world. And I'm sure that they have patrolled the waters near South Korea at some time in recent years. But this will be the first time that they dock there, you know, openly since the 1980s. And all it is is a purposeful provocation that's all this is going to achieve is increasing tensions and that's seems to be almost the point here um so anyway the next one here uh israel is concerned about the u.s depleting its ammo stockpiles 
And this is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. So American arms stockpiles in Israel have begun to shrink, according to Israeli officials. The White House has shipped weapons from its depots around the globe to fuel the Ukrainian war machine. According to Israeli officials speaking with Israel Hayam, quote, some of the munitions have been shipped out in recent months to avoid drawing media attention. The shipments out of Israel, which began under the premierships of Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett, have continued until recent weeks, end quote. So the New York Times first reported in January that the U.S. was using these stockpiles of weapons that they keep in Israel to arm Ukraine. But this sounds like they've been doing it a lot more than we've been uh, told, than, than we've known about. So, and this does not make Israel happy because the idea of this stockpile, you know, in, in Israel's mind is that it could be used to protect Israel in a future war. And, you know, tensions have been very high, although it does seem like the Israeli airstrikes in Syria have backed down. They backed down on that a bit. But still, you know, this is something that Israel doesn't seem to be happy about. And also when they, when I remember when the New York Times reported it, because Israel has not been sending weapons to Ukraine or what they call lethal aid. They've been giving them other types of aid. Some Israeli officials were worried that this would look like Israel is arming Ukraine, but it is American weapons that they keep there. Um, and they've also been sending weapons from stockpiles that they have in South Korea, which also they have a policy not to arm, uh, not to send weapons into conflict zones. Uh, all right, the next one here, Iran seizes a U.S.-bound oil tanker near Oman. So the U.S. military said Thursday that Iran seized a Marshall Islands-flagged oil tanker, the Advantage Suite, that was bound for Texas. According to Iranian media, the ship was seized after it collided with an Iranian fishing vessel. So the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet said in a statement, quote, the oil tanker issued a distress call during the seizure, Iran's actions are contrary to international law and disruptive to regional security and stability. Iran should immediately release the oil tanker, end quote. So according to Iran's press TV, the Iranian Navy, quote, has seized a Marshall Islands flagged oil tanker in the Sea of Oman and directed it toward the country's territorial waters after the ship hit an Iranian vessel and tried to flee in violation of maritime regulations, end quote. So the ship's owner, which is Advantage Tankers, they said that they, they they knew the ship was seized, but they were not aware of the collision. The company said in a statement, quote, the safety and welfare of our valued crew members is our number one priority. Similar experiences show that crew members of vessels taken under such circumstances are in no danger, end quote. Um, so who knows exactly what happened? Uh, I know from my experience, I used to work on boats in New York Harbor and fishing vessels or sailing boats that would, you know, collide with a ship or bump a ship. They usually are the ones that try to take off because they don't have all the regulations and stuff. Um, but who knows what, what the story is. But I had to mention the context here. And that is that the U.S. has a history of seizing vessels carrying Iranian oil and gas. So the U.S. has seized tankers before carrying Iranian oil, and they actually sold off that oil, which is really just, you know, sounds like piracy. And they use sanctions enforcement as pretext. So this context is always missing from, you know, the mainstream reports about Iran uh, seizing this tanker or, or in other instances where they've done things uh, in the past like this. 
Um, just in uh, in 2021, the U.S. government sold two million barrels of Iranian oil for 110 million dollars from a tanker seized near the UAE. During the Trump administration, the U.S. sold off Iranian gas that was bound for Venezuela. So again, I think that's very crucial context whenever you're talking about this, but it doesn't seem like this is any sort of intentional thing aimed at the U.S. I'm not sure. I would be surprised if Iran tried to pump the oil off and sell it like the U.S. does. Um, and then the last one here, this is just uh, a, an update on the Sudan situation. So they had that 72-hour ceasefire, and the military and the rapid support forces said that they agreed to extend the truce, but fighting has been going, some fighting has been going on still in Khartoum and also in Darfur. Uh, there's violence has spread there. So that's the situation. Um, and apparently this was mediated by Saudi Arabia and the US. So we will see uh, what happens here. But so a lot of people evacuated. So this says, you know, during the previous 72 hours, the fighting didn't stop, but it created enough of a lull for a lot of people to leave for a lot of evacuations. Um, so that's the situation there. Uh, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Snyder, the growing Russia-India relationship. One from Anatole Levin over at Responsible Statecraft. The Pentagon leaks reinforces what we already know. The U.S. and NATO are in it to win. One from Philip Weiss, White House officials know Israel is an apartheid state, but they can't say so. And that's over at Mondo Weiss. One from Andy Corbley, U.S. and South Korea agree to co-design nuclear weapons policy. And that is uh, an original from us at antiwar.com. And the spotlight is from Joseph Solis Mullen over at the Libertarian Institute. War with Spain changed America for the worst. And that is everything. That's it for me for the week. I will be back after the weekend. Again, if you could help us out with our fundraiser, we'd really appreciate it. Anything you can contribute, antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, also, share uh, the fundraiser. Tell people about antiwar.com. Tell people about this show. Like and subscribe. You know, the engagement is good. The reviews are good. All that's good. Uh, but I'll be back after the weekend. Thanks for listening.